everybody, this is Daniel Patrick, and this is episode number 83 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Hope everybody's having a great week. I'm getting ready to play a, a St. Patrick's Day gig. Happy St. Patrick's Day. It is March 17th when I'm recording this here intro. Um, I posted a picture of some pics on my website, on my Instagram, and I actually got a few messages asking about them, and they are by Apollo Picks. And I actually reached out to Nick about these picks. He builds them out of casein and out of peak, P-E-E-K. That I do not know. Um, what that is, but I will tell you this much. I got three picks from him Saturday afternoon. I sent him a computer scan of the pick I used most often, and from that pick uh, picture, he made one, not made one, made three that were exactly the same size and shape of what I use. I got a Saturday afternoon. I played nine hours worth of gigs this weekend, three gigs, and I used those picks the entire time as a matter of fact i used the peak pick that p-e-e-k pick um which is uh pretty similar in tone to a wegan i would say kind of anyway i love them and so i'm glad to welcome them as a sponsor for some episodes here the podcast and if you're nervous about spending uh, money on a pick because they are a little bit more expensive than just you know uh tortex pick they offer free shipping and a 40-day guarantee so go to ApolloPicks.com and tell Nick that Dan sent you. You will not be disappointed. The customer service is top-notch. And um, I will tell you this, I've used the, uh, the blue ones, the brown ones, the white ones, the red ones, the purple ones, the green ones. And uh, these, are, <laughs> these are killer picks. I mean, uh, I, I guess I, I didn't reach into my pocket for my regular go-to pick the entire weekend. Uh, I use these Apollo Picks exclusively, so... Thank you so much to Nick for the killer customer service. Really, really appreciate it. Also, some killer players are using them as well. So thank you to Nick. Also, thank you to Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation's got those killer streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. And they've got a brand new coming up, brand new one coming up with Joe K. Walsh. And it is on Octave Mandolin. And um, so I'm going to be talking to Joe actually coming up here pretty quick. But if you want to go and pre-sign up for that, you can go to pegheadnation.com and use that promo code mandolinbeer at checkout if you're new and you get your first month for free. Not to mention they have Sharon Gilchrist, Joe, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Feibish, and Chad Manning for their video courses. So be sure to check them out. Thank you so much to Peghead Nation. Also got Northfield Mandolins. Let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. They also are the uh, octave mandolin that Joe uses that I've seen anyway in all his uh, Instagram videos. It's I love that octave mandolin. So that's Northfield Mandolins. Um, peg or, uh, Ear Trumpet Labs. Ear Trumpet Labs, hand-built microphones from Portland, Oregon. Their mics beautifully designed, have great feedback rejection for live use, and the most natural tone you'll find for acoustic instruments. I used it this weekend. Check them out at eartrumpetlabs.com today. And Pava Mandolins, Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player right there in Austin, Texas. Lynn Dudenbostel is my guest this week. Um, man, what a nice guy. I took two of my mandolins uh, to the shop there for him to do some work, and we had a great conversation. Uh, I could have talked to Lynn for hours. I mean, we did talk for hours. We had to stop talking so we could record the podcast <laughs> so we wouldn't talk about everything ahead of time. And, um, yeah, he's a great guy. So this is a really, really cool one. He's got some interesting stories. So let's get into it with Lynn Dudenbostel. Oh, and also during this episode, we talk about the newly re-released Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual. It's the fourth edition, and um, and it is a huge resource. Lynn even talks about it himself, and this is by Roger Simonoff. Roger's going to be a guest on the podcast coming up here. He's got a pretty deep history with Lloyd Lore that I had no idea about. If you go to Simonoff.net, you can read all about it. Or you can wait for the podcast and check that out as well. But you can get this book now. It's re-released. It's got an intro by Steve Gilchrist. It's got 330 color photos, 150 text pages, and 21 full-size fold-out F5 mandolin drawings. 
And since it's re-released, this is actually a big deal because used copies of the old ones are hundreds of dollars used online right now. So go to SiminoffBooks.com and order your copy today or go to mandolinsofbeer.com. I'll have a link as well. All right. Lynn Dudenbostel, everybody. All right. I am on location currently with the uh, the one and only Lynn Dudenbostel. Lynn, how you doing? Doing pretty good. Man, thank yeah. you so much for doing this. I really Happy appreciate it. it. Been, uh, we spent a little bit of time together this morning here and and talking, and we had to cut the conversation off so we didn't talk about everything before we started recording. That's right. Some pretty great stories. So, yeah. How long have you been um, in this location? We've been here, I think this will be 17 years. Oh, uh, wow. I grew up in Knoxville, which is just about 30 minutes away, and we decided uh, before our kids started driving that we were going to move to a little quieter area, and uh, I think we found the spot. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Driving here, too, is like, uh, um, I never really get to see uh, cows. You know, like, yeah. And, and I've never seen calves, like, running around and playing. Oh, and yeah, when I was coming here this morning, everywhere. it was amazing. It was, mm -hmm. like, watching these well, these calves zipping around. I'm like, wow, this is great. Well, we're in the foothills of the Smokies here. So mm. uh, our county, a good portion of the national park is in this county. And our county borders North Carolina. So it's... You're not far from the mountains. Yeah, it's beautiful. Man. Oh, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm. I bet you do. Yeah. So, um, obviously, you make these incredible instruments, these incredible mandolins, but it, you didn't just wake up and make these incredible mandolins. So was, was bluegrass music, be, be, you know, when you first came up, was that kind of like a big interest for you? Yeah. When I was about 13 years old, I started taking guitar lessons. Mm -hmm. um, I played clarinet in the band from the time I was in about the third or fourth grade on up into high school. When I was about 13, my dad got a guitar, and so I started taking guitar lessons, and uh, my brother started taking banjo lessons. And so that's kind of where the bluegrass influence came in. The guitar teacher I had, his name was Charlie Hageman, who taught over in Knoxville. Um, he played with Homer and Jethro before they were Homer and Jethro, before oh, they wow. went into the war, uh, off to you know World War II. And the fellow that taught in the studio next to him was H.E. Burns, was Jethro's brother. Oh, no older kidding, brother. Really? So I, I knew him pretty well. But uh, Charlie is the guy that Jethro credits with teaching him a lot of the old jazz standards. Uh, one of the acoustic disc releases that Grisman did. Yeah. With Jethro, he did an interview with him. And he said, well, the guy that taught me a lot of this was Charlie Hageman. Well, I'm going to this guy trying to keep, teach me all this great chord solo stuff and everything. And I keep taking in tapes of Doc Watson saying, <laughs> can you teach me this? And he could, you know, he'd sit there and play it and yeah. teach me stuff. So, you know, maybe I didn't really fully take advantage of that. But as my brother started playing banjo, I kind of picked it up and started playing too. Mm -hmm. So um, going to bluegrass festivals and stuff back then, you know, it was pretty early days for bluegrass festivals. And right. 1972, 73 time frame. The James Monroe Festival up here at Cosby, Tennessee was the first one I ever went to. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Bill Monroe played there. Wow. And it was, uh, it was really something. Saw Don Reno and a bunch of the early folks. But uh, yeah, I got a real interest for bluegrass then. And uh, mandolin never really hit me as something I wanted to fool with until a little bit later on. And my brother started bringing home these other albums mm -hmm. to listen to. And that first new grass revival album, mm -hmm. kind of like, wait a minute, <laughs> <laughs> more to the world than banjo. And uh, then later on, you know, David Grisman and Sam Bush. And that's, yeah, I, I saw Monroe and appreciated what he was doing, but it was, it was David and Sam that really sparked my interest in mandolin.
and here you are however many years later working on a lot of years later yeah working, yeah. On, working on Haas just recently <laughs> the, right uh, uh -huh. I don't know if we can talk about I'm just yeah, fingerboard that's yeah, fine. fingerboard replacement mm -hmm. so yeah it's not the first one that's been replaced <laughs> on it <laughs> <laughs> that's great I so what this is number five Sam said that's amazing yeah Although yeah. when you watch them play, it's completely believable. <laughs> well, you know, you're sitting there working on it, and you all of a sudden it dawns on you, and this is the one I was listening to on that first New Grass Revival album. And, you know, this is part of what got me into this, you know, mandolin thing. And uh, it just really stuck. That's so cool. Mm -hmm. I, um, I got to meet Sam once, and it mm -hmm. was before I had this podcast. And I was playing, but I wouldn't say I was really a player yet at this mm -hmm. point, but he had played in Charleston, and... Um, the guy who booked it's like, hey, if you want to hang out after Sam's going to come out and uh, yeah, I'd love to yeah. hang out. Yeah. And um, my wife's got pictures of me talking and my, my mouth's wide open because it, it was like I've known him all my life. He was just like, yeah, you know, Dan, I was totally just, at ease with him. Yeah. He's yeah. just like, mm -hmm. I was I was just thinking today I've had Haas now for whatever amount of Since years. 1973. Yeah. And this mm -hmm. this might have been. Was it 2013? I might have saw him. It was like an anniversary number. Right. He's like, I was stringing up Haas today, and I'm sitting here. I'm like, I can't believe I'm having this conversation with Sam Bush. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And he was That's just right. Just like a normal. There was no. It's just like you said, right at ease. Well, I'm always impressed when I go to a, especially some of the smaller venues, and he comes out to the record table after the show, and he's there until everybody's gone. Nice. You know, he's just he's so accessible and such a good guy. Yeah, he yeah. seems like it. I mean, was that time? I mean. That time I met him, I was just like, my wife, she's just laughing afterwards. She's like, you just look, you look like a little kid. Cause he was like sitting on the stage, <laughs> you know, and I'm like looking up at him and it was just like, it was the best. Yeah. So did you, did you start playing mandolin then? Uh, I didn't really start. Well, I started playing mandolin in 1982. Oh, okay. I bought cool. my first mandolin, uh, in 1982. Uh, I was at the mandolin symposium one year, uh, working there. And when they were introducing the instructors to everyone, they were all going around talking about their first mandolin. And I said, yeah, mine was one of those pack rim imports. <clears throat> it was a Gilcrest. <laughs> but back in 1982, <laughs> mine was actually built in Nashville when Steve was there right. uh, okay, working cool. at yeah. Bruins yeah. in his shop. And this was the one that George had as a sample in the shop for a couple of years. And he was getting a new one in because Steve was making some changes to the S-shaped holes and the new script on the peg head. Mm -hmm. And so he decided to sell the one he had because a new one was coming and I bought it. And uh, back then, a new Gilcrest was $1,750. <laughs> so uh, that, that was a lot of money in 1982. Sure. When you put yeah. it, when you put it in your perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a lore later that year, I had a chance to buy a lore, which I turned down because gosh, I paid that much for my new car in 1980. Uh, <laughs> but a lore was $8,500. Wow. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Hey, you could go in Gruen's back in that time frame in the late seventies and early eighties and pick just about any herringbone D28 he had on the wall, vintage herringbone, they were all $3,500 to $3,700. And I think a vintage D45 at the time was about $8,000. Wow. I remember yeah. in the 80s when I first was getting old enough to, like, go to music stores and you'd go to, like, mm -hmm. pawn shops or whatever in, 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 the elect in the electric world, like Gibson Les Pauls. Like, you'd see a Les Paul for, like, $700 because right. nobody was playing them. Yeah. And mm -hmm. then in the 90s, boom takes off, and you you know, you're know you thinking, boy, I wish I would have bought every Les Paul I saw. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah. If you could go back with a pocket full of money and know what you know now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and other things that you wouldn't think that were kind of sleepers at the time. Um, a friend of mine that unfortunately lost a few years ago had a, a 1934 long-scale 00018 Martin. Oh. And we found some uh, handwritten notes where he bought that guitar from Gruen in 1981 or 82. I forget now. It was $1,250. <laughs> and those guitars are going for about 20000 now. So that's pretty good appreciation. Yeah. Yeah. Are there any, um, besides the, the lore there, is there any uh, ones that got away for you that you're like, oh, man? Oh, not really. Mm -hmm. No. Mm -mm. I guess, though, so, if you're building them like you're building them, I, I, I wouldn't be worrying about Worrying about missing anything either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, yeah, it, it's not that so much, but yeah, it's, it's nice. I get to play with a lot of them now, so mm -hmm. I don't have any regrets for not getting one. Sure. Uh, get quite a few of them through the shop to work on, so mm -hmm. 
I get to visit with a lot of them. Yeah, I uh, bet. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's also so great that you're not only this like world renowned builder, but you're like a guy that people entrust with, you know, their, their babies. You know what I mean? There's yeah. a, a real famous lore here. Just, you know, I don't, a few weeks Couple, ago. Yeah. A week ago. I, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah, it's when, when I talked with that person, they were just, I mean, completely at ease with the fact of, you know, it wasn't like, I mean, I had a lore, I'd be, I'd probably yeah. carry it and feathers sure. here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's amazing. I think that's so mm -hmm. cool that, that you have both of those ends of the spectrum for you. So. Yeah, I don't do a whole lot of, uh, you know, I, I mainly build, but I do some repair and restoration. Uh, and that's uh, set up work and such as that. And um, some of these old mandolins need a little attention now. I mean, they're pushing 100 years old. And uh, after they've been refretted so many times and the fret slots are worn out, uh, you got to put a new fingerboard on them or do this or that, you know. Was the goal for you as a kid, like, was it to, was it to play bluegrass music? Was it to build instruments? What, like, how did you start on this path of becoming a builder? It was playing at first mm -hmm. and just for my own enjoyment and with friends. I never had any aspiration to be a full-time musician. I like being around home too much. You sure, know? yeah. And uh, so I guess it was probably on up in the, in the, you know, 82 or 83, I kind of got the bug to build a mandolin. And uh, there wasn't a whole lot on it at the time, except Roger Simonoff had come out with his book on mandolin building. And so, uh, you know, I got the book. Back then, it was a three-ring binder, you know. <laughs> no kidding, Professionally yeah. done, but in a three-ring binder, so you could take the pages out when you were working on oh, section. Oh, nice. And um, Tom Morgan, down in Dayton, Tennessee, had some plans that he drew up some sketches of the F5 and Fretz magazine was going and they had uh, a feature one time on different neck joints that people used in mandolins. Oh, I cool. think they had Tom Morgan and Roger Simonoff and John Monleone, I believe if I remember right, were the three that they kind of featured in that article. And, you know, I'm the kid, I never took shop class in junior high or high school. Wow. I wish I had of now, <laughs> but uh, you know, my, experience with woodworking pretty much was uh, building some radio control airplanes from kits. And so I got the bug to build, uh, mainly because there's a builder up here on the Cumberland Plateau named Gene Horner. And Gene's in his mid-80s now, and he's uh, not in the best of health, but he's still, you know, uh, when I saw him about a year ago, um, he was still building fiddles and mandolins. And so he kind of used to have an open shop on Saturdays. And so this would have been back about 1979 or 80 or so. We were going up there with some friends and people would come and sit and pick and visit on Saturdays. I thought, boy, this looks like it'd be fun. I think I'd enjoy <laughs> doing this. Yeah. And so I made a feeble attempt at uh, carving a mandolin top and uh, I probably still have it around somewhere, but oh, I cool. never did finish it. I didn't have the tools. I didn't have the place. I didn't have the knowledge. So finally, in uh, my wife and I got married in 1987, and not long after that, she wanted a dulcimer. And, that's, and I thought, here's my chance. <laughs> the, <laughs> the car goes out of the garage. I get some tools, and so I set up a little shop in the basement of our first house. And um, I said, I'm going to build a dulcimer. Then I think I'll build a guitar. And then I'm going to build an F5 mandolin. You know, wow. nothing like being <laughs> overconfident. <laughs> right. So um, I built a dulcimer. And I ended up building about four of them. And uh, then I got the bug for the guitar. And I, I built a guitar. Finished my first guitar in 1989. Mm -hmm. uh, our daughter was born that year. So Dreadnought, Dreadnought style? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, Dreadnought. Mm-hmm. And uh, with a lot of help from John Arnold over in Newport, tremendous luthier and great friend. And he gave me a lot of advice and uh, talked me through a lot of things. But um, so anyway, I built the guitar and the intent was to build a mandolin after that. Well, somebody saw it and ordered one. And then somebody else ordered one. And I'm like, this is a hobby that's getting out of hand. <laughs> and I... Um, I built about 16 guitars before finally in 1996, I got my first two mandolins built. I started two F5s at once and wow. finished them right about the same time. 
Um, if they hadn't turned out decent, there would have been a lot of wasted wood there, wasted <laughs> time. But uh, in, the, in about that time, you know, I'd, I'd build a number of guitars and, and I'd build a couple of mandolins. And I was working for Lockheed Martin in Oak Ridge and been there for about 16 years. And Thanksgiving week of 1996, uh, fate kind of stepped in and they were doing a lot of downsizing and I got downsized. I showed up at home early one day and my wife said, what are you doing home so early? And I just handed her the letter and she oh. looked at it. Here we had three small children at home. Our youngest son was uh, Matthew that you met earlier. Yeah, was a yeah. year old. Oh my gosh. And uh, Andrew was uh, about three and Lauren was about six. And she kind of turned about as pale as I did when I got it and said, well, we'll be all right. And so the more we talked, the more she said, if this is what you want to do, this may be the time to do it. And we spent a lot of time talking and went up and spent the day with George Gruen, went out to lunch with him. We talked about it. Um, he was very encouraging, um, really at a time when I needed the encouragement. Mm -hmm. And uh, she uh, finally said, you know, this may be it. And so in the meantime, they find another position for me and they're kind of, I interviewed for it and they're trying to get permission to keep me on in this other position. And so we made the decision, no, this is time to go. Mm -hmm. And so I had to go back and tell them, thank you, but no, thank you. Wow. And so February 1st of 1997 was my first day doing this full time. So I've been doing it full time for 24 years. Holy cow. That's but great. this year will make 32 years since I built my first guitar. Wow. And that's uh, awesome, man. So yeah. And uh, it's, it's been a good, been a good run. Now, was that know? one over there that I played just a little bit ago? Was that number one? Number the mandolin? One? Yeah. That is the very first mandolin I ever built. That is mandolin mm -hmm. i mean i wish i sh i wish i would have videotaped my face playing it <laughs> because just strumming it the first time I'm like oh my gosh well, it came oh out okay. my gosh mm -hmm. i had a real good friend the one i mentioned about the triple o that we lost a few years ago mm -hmm. he had quite a collection of instruments and i give him a lot of credit for me being where i am now because he would loan me all of these great instruments he had a lore and he loaned me the lore to take measurements from said, so take it, keep it as long as you want, you know, take the hardware off, take measurements, do wow. whatever you need to do. Take the, and just take trusted the me off. with the lore, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, same thing when I was building guitars, uh, that triple O, that's the one he loaned me when I started building OMs and triple O's. Wow. And he had old herring bones he would loan me. He did not loan me the 38 D45, but <laughs> he would bring it over and let me visit with it. Uh, but, he was never pushy about it. Matter of fact, he ordered the first instrument I ever sold, the, the second guitar. Oh, cool. And uh, along with a couple of others. And uh, he was never pushy about it. He was a physicist, um, very intelligent guy, and you know, great, very, very good guy to run ideas past. Mm -hmm. And uh, he uh, never was pushy about anything, but I knew he had expectations. And uh, I didn't want to disappoint him. Wow. So I guess I just put a lot of effort into it and never felt any pressure. But uh, he made a lot of really great stuff available to me. And, uh, you know, what they did back in the 20s and 30s as far as instruments still stands today right. as some of the very best. So uh, that's that's kind of where you learn. So when you're taking when you're taking a lower part, because you, you said you've got, you've got the book, so it's giving you some sort of dimensions, I'd imagine. But when you're when you're taking a classic instrument like that, like what are some of the real important information you think you got from, you know, was it like top thickness that you measured that seemed to be everything, thing everything, everything, top and back thicknesses. And I've mm -hmm. measured a lot of tops and backs on lures, ferns and such. And, mm -hmm. and you find out why some of them work so good and why some of them don't work as good. Uh, most all of them work really well. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, just overall dimensions of it. The archings, you know, the archings on lures changed over time. Um, no doubt they were probably built on, they didn't have CNC machines back then. <laughs> right. So they had some sort of a manual duplicator, a, you know, a pattern carver mm -hmm. that they were carving from a master pattern. If you look at the 1922, it's got a little higher arch. Things are a little sharper and more angular. Uh, you get in the 1923 and... Uh, 
you don't notice maybe a little bit less arch, but by the time late 1924 came along, the arches were flatter and you gotta, gotta theorize maybe the patterns were wearing down a bit by that time. But oh, there wow. were great instruments in all those time periods. Holy cow. Yeah. When you say there's certain things that you find that you know make them sound good and there's reasons why you get some that maybe don't sound as good is there a common thing mm -hmm. that you find with that that it's just like oh it was this is the reason why it doesn't sound maybe as well some thicknesses in different places that are that are a little bit different for the most part most of the lures are very close to the same graduations as close as they could be carved by hand you know all the final graduations were done by hand um but there was one mandolin in particular that I worked on. It was a, a master model fern from 26 or so that was just a great, incredibly powerful instrument. Mm -hmm. And uh, later on, after it changed hands, uh, the fellow sent it to me for a, a refret. And so I measured the top thickness and the back thickness, and the top was thicker counterintuitive you would think a thinner top might sound better right thicker than any lore i'd ever measured by a good half to well a good 10 or 15 percent thicker overall and uh i i took measurements on that and i've used those graduations too and they they still work it's uh it makes a really powerful instrument that's incredible mm -hmm. uh, one of the questions i got from a from a listener was when was your like aha moment where everything kind of clicked for you, where you were kind of like, I mean, I'm sure it's a learning experience, every, mm -hmm. everyone, but what was the time when you were like, okay, I got a handle on this now, you know, it's just. Oh gosh, that, that's hard to say. I don't really know. Um, I had really good luck with number one. But <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, you know, I was happy with the sound and still am, mm -hmm. but I think cosmetically and especially developing the sunburst, one of the hardest things I've done is develop a good sunburst. I mean, that duplicating colors is difficult. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I do a lot nicer job now than I did back then, but sound-wise, I'm still pretty happy with number one. But uh, there are different sounds based on different woods that you use. Uh, you know, you played my A5 yeah. with a softer top yeah. on it and a Verzi in it, and it's totally different beast from number one. Right. Mm -hmm. Beautiful sounding, though. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Like you, you you nailed it. It's the number one's got that just killer mid-range. Mm -hmm. you know, I probably could have knocked that box over with it if I <laughs> put a little behind it, but the A was just a sweet, sweet tone. Yeah, you know, and it's a real pretty tone. Yeah, and, uh, that that has more to do with the wood selection, I think, mm -hmm. than anything. And the Verzi has something to do with it too. Adds a little complexity to it. Um, I there's very few spruces I use. Um, I've used. I'm, I'm usually not a big fan of Sitka spruce, uh, although I played some great instruments with it. But I got a hold of some really old uh, Sitka. I mean, like was probably harvested back in the 20s or 30s and supposedly spent most of its life in a salmon trap underwater in Alaska and was dredged up in the 50s or 60s and cut into instrument tops. And I built a few with that wow. and it's really good stuff. But with the exception of that, I pretty much stick to either Engelmann spruce, which is the softer, more complex sound, um, red spruce, which is what was used on the instruments back in the 20s and Martin's even uh, guitars into the 30s. Um, tremendous wood, uh, takes a while to break in, but it's a really great wood. And then a few years ago, I was uh, at John Arnold's place and John and Ted Davis harvested a lot of red spruce over the years. And um, he had this beautiful guitar top laying there and I'm like, oh my gosh, what tree is this from? You know, it looked just like red spruce. And uh, I said, you're holding back on me. You know, this is great. <laughs> and he said, well, it's, it's not red spruce. I said, what is it? And he said, well, it's Carpathian spruce from Romania. And uh, I said, do you mind if I ask where you got it? And he said, eBay. No <laughs> so way, really? there was a dealer up in Pennsylvania selling this stuff on eBay. And so I was buying some of it from him mm -hmm. and uh, ended up um, meeting through a mutual friend, John Preston up in West Virginia who's a retired forester now, and he would go to Romania a couple of times a year and pick this stuff out. He was uh, more of a violin guy, but he bought guitar and mandolin tops too and, and uh, maple 
from uh, Eastern Europe too, which is what the violin people really like. It's really good stuff. So uh, got to know him and have got some really good wood from him over the years. And uh, the Carpathian kind of runs the gamut from a little softer top that's very Engelman-like to a harder, denser wood that's just a dead ringer for red spruce. But the thing about it is the harder, stiffer wood will give that red spruce type sound, but doesn't have the break-in period. It's a lot more like Engelman that it, it comes on pretty quick. Wow. And, and I also love, so you've gone, you, you get wood from eBay, and then when we <laughs> right. walk around the shop earlier, you're showing me these beautiful pieces of wood here that yeah. you, you found at the place just down the road here. That's right, just like about 10 minutes away. Yeah, just carries hardwood, and you're like, this is a... So, and it is, it's in the tone where you were tapping the tone oh, yeah. and it's just mm -hmm. like, holy cow. I found, uh, in particular, I never find much in the way of curly maple except for uh, neck blanks there, but I found bird's eye maple suitable for one piece mandolin backs. Found uh, 16 quarter mahogany that I used for guitar necks for several years. And you just never know what you're going to find there. Right. I mean, to be an instrument wood, it has to be probably in the upper 1% or less of wood that's harvested to get all the characteristics that you want. Right, And right. so that's that's the main difference is why instrument wood is so expensive is because it's kind of the best of the best and there's so little of it and there's a demand for it. So it, it gets uh, sold mostly through dealers that deal in, in instrument. But sooner or later, you go to a place like this that's got a lot of hardwood, uh, you're going to find something. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. So then you start building these mandolins, uh -huh. and what what happens that takes you from being a guy who's who's building, you know, a couple couple mandolins in in his shop mm -hmm. to to suddenly like the name Dudenbostel <laughs> is uh, very familiar to mandolin players suddenly, and the demand mm -hmm. increases. What, what, you know, do you remember that moment? Well, yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. uh, backstage at Merle Fest, uh, I finished my first mandolin in 1996. Um, and I went to Merle Fest and uh, with a good friend, uh, Scott Rouse and his dad, uh, always made sure I had a backstage pass and I got to hang out with them and, and a lot of really great folks. And Scott introduced me, I had my first mandolin with me, and uh, Scott introduced me to Ronnie McCurry. And we were sitting in Doc's dressing room and Ronnie was playing my first mandolin and we were talking. And as he was playing, a teenage Chris Thiele walks by the door and <laughs> stops and backs up and says, what are you playing, Ronnie? And he just messed with him a little bit and said, oh, it's a mandolin. <laughs> so, uh, no, no, what is it? Can I play it? And Ronnie said, no. <laughs> they just, you know, friends. Yeah. And, and finally he said, here, and he went over and picked up a guitar that was leaning up against the wall on the other side of the room. And Chris started playing. And I'm sitting there, you know, here's Ronnie and Chris. And it's like, oh, my gosh. And uh, then every time I'd run into Chris, he'd like, what do you have with you? And uh, so we were at IBMA. Gosh, I'd have to look up and see what year it was. Probably 99 or may have been 98, I don't remember. And I had number five with me. Number five was my first Engelman spruce top mandolin. And I kind of intended to keep it for myself. But uh, I, I guess it was actually back up from Merlefest. I went to IBMA and I literally finished number five and strung it up for the first time the night before I went up there. Oh, wow. And I ran into Chris. He said, what'd you bring? And I said, well, I've got this new one, and I said, I've got number four that belongs to a friend of mine also. He said, I want to play him. So he came up to the room later in the evening and played him, and uh, he, he really liked him. So uh, saw him again at Merle Fest the next spring, and that happened to be the weekend that they Nickel Creek signed their uh, contract with Sugar Hill Records. And so Chris wanted to play when he found out I had number five with me again. So we found an empty dressing room backstage that evening. There was a bunch of cases in there and band out on stage playing. We weren't paying any attention to who it was. Well, we were sitting there playing it before we knew it. It was Psychograss. So in comes Mike Marshall and, you know, Todd Phillips and all those guys. And Chris and, and Mike sat there and played and talked mandolins for about an hour and a half, it seemed like. 
And uh, Chris decided he, he would like to play it the next day on the set on the main stage. I said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and he played another uh, set with it on, a, on one of the other stages before I left the next day. And he asked if he could borrow it to record the first album with Nickel Creek. I mm -hmm. said, yeah, absolutely. So it needed a little setup to suit him better. And so I took it back home and he drove down and picked it up a couple of weeks later. And uh, so that I guess that was kind of the moment that it was like, okay, maybe this is going to work. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. And, and then at the time, I mean, obviously, Thiele was a force to be reckoned with at that oh, age. Oh, sure. Yeah. But who knew that Nickel Creek would... Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, just explode well, for, his for dad, a bluegrass band. His dad, Scott, was still playing bass with him. That's right. One yeah. With him. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So how long did it take after that moment for you then to suddenly start getting orders and the demand starts to go up? Was it pretty, pretty instantaneous? Well, yeah, it, it happened fairly quick. Mm -hmm. um, I probably really started getting guitar orders more than mandolin orders initially uh, I worked at a, a Steve Kaufman's camp over here in Maryville College oh, uh, yeah. doing repair and setup work for, uh, I guess it was five years I did that. You know, when he went to a two-week format, I was doing both weeks. Oh, cool. And uh, I was a lot younger then. <laughs> and uh, so I, I got a lot of exposure there. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really kicked the guitar orders kind of into gear. And all of a sudden, I found myself with a backlog. So that happened at a real good time because I started doing that right after I left my day job. And uh, so, and then I continued to work. Let's see, I worked at his camp, I think it was from 2007 to about 2002 or so. And uh, then a few years later, I got invited to uh, teach the builders class at the Mandolin Symposium out in California, in Santa Cruz. Was, that was another, another listener asked, yeah, asked how that came about. Well, I got a call from Steve Rufo one day, mm -hmm. and uh, he said, you know, me and David have been talking, and uh, David and Mike, and said, we'd like to invite you out to teach the builders class. Wow. Which, you know, at that point, they had, I think, only two other instructors, and it was Mike Chemnitzer and John Monleone taught two years. I taught, I think the third year they did it, that was 2007. And Steve Gilchrist taught in 2008 and 2009. And they weren't getting very many people in the builders class. And I'm like, Steve's teaching. I ought to go, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm amazed it just didn't go over the, the builders part of it that mm -hmm. big. But um, it was great going out there and doing that. I had such a, such a great time. So <clears throat> they abandoned the builders class after 2009. And uh, I was talking to Steve one day and I said, why don't we do like a, a kind of a workshop thing and do setup and minor repairs and stuff for people and uh, kind of make it a, a thing for the scholarship fund and raise some money for the scholarship fund. And oh, so cool. he was all for that. Yeah. And so I went out there and uh, shipped a bunch of tools out there ahead of time and uh, did refrets, setups, um, installed tailpieces, pick guards, and stayed busy the whole week. And it worked out good for them and it worked out good for me. So I ended up doing that until t every year until 2015 when they had the last mandolin symposium. Yeah, wow, and, cool. Uh, that was just a, that was a tremendous experience every year. I bet. I really miss that. You showed me the uh, you showed me the video there of Mike Marshall playing number one. Yeah. On stage, mm -hmm. and it's it's incredible because you know, like sometimes you know, there's that old saying. There's fifty different musicians that you can say the mm -hmm. story behind, but the 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 Bill Monroe story I always related to is somebody walks by and they're like, "Oh, there's that that Monroe or that mandolin sounds incredible." Yeah. And he's always like, "Yeah, mm -hmm. how's the sound now?" That's <laughs> and, right. You know, it's him well. playing it. But it was amazing to me because, you know, uh, Mike Marshall's an incredible player. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But you could hear that tonal quality that I just heard when I played that mandolin and you played me that mandolin. It was mm -hmm. amazing. Well, thanks. That you could hear those. Yeah. That that mm -hmm. tone. I mean, it was instantly recognizable. Yeah. You know, I think that's well, so you. neat. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. How many uh, how many mandolins have you built? Oh, I'm getting close to number 100. Wow, I've, I've yeah. built 
about equal numbers of guitars and mandolins. And mm -hmm. I think altogether I've built right around 190 instruments, not counting the four dulcimers. And uh, <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I think, let me look here. Mandolin wise, I think I'm on number, oh gosh, I don't even have one really in the works right now. I've put a serial number on the board because uh, that's one I want to build for myself. You know, the trouble is I've only got my first F5 and my first A5. It's hard to hang on to anything. Right, and so right, I need yeah. to build one to show people of my current work. What do you think the difference is currently besides finish with between, because I mean, it's hard pressed to think anything sounds better well, than number one. That thing is just a yeah, it's sound wise, really, I don't think I've changed that much mm -hmm. since that one. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. But uh, cosmetics wise, you know, just things are cleaner and mm -hmm. neater. And, uh, you know, first time build a to build an F5 for your first mandolins a little bit, uh, <laughs> you know, a little bit arrogant, you know, thinking it's going to come out okay. And uh, but, you know, it's um, I, I think I've gotten better. Uh, with my hands, but uh, sound-wise, uh, you know, that's those graduations from that July 9th. Mm -hmm. And I still use those graduations on a lot of instruments today, but I've, I've learned from some others. And uh, just coincidentally, uh, studying that July 9th, 23, that I took the measurements from, my friend loaned me, uh, one of the, I think it was probably the second time I ever talked to Mike Chemnitzer, you know, two mandolin guys talk, you're going to talk about lores at some point. He said, you know, I think the best one I ever played was this July 9th with a one piece back that was loaned to me out in Colorado before I started building. He said, I, I kept it about three months, took measurements from it, and I based all my early mandolins off of that. And we did a little discussion back and forth, and I found out who it was that loaned it to him. And I said, well, buddy of mine, bought a July 9th with a one piece back from him. And we shared a couple of stories and no doubt he studied the same mandolin in, in a different time period in a different part of the country that I did uh, to base our mandolins on. Wow. And I thought that was just quite a coincidence. Yeah. That's amazing, mm -hmm. man. Yeah. Wow. Have, have there been any uh, big, I mean, you know, Sam, was just in here have there mm -hmm. any, any other things like that that were you know as being a music fan that you were surprised oh, yeah. by like oh well uh yeah a number number of folks i've done work for i'm just like you know i've i've done a little bit of stuff you know little tweaks and stuff uh, to reichman's lore you know over the years he he takes really good care of it doesn't need a whole lot you know and uh uh get a call from Doc Watson to work on his guitar, you know, that, that'll wake you up. Wow. Yeah. Holy so cow. I did a little bit of work for him in later years. That's but, amazing. Uh, yeah. What's it take you to time timeline? Um, if you're to ballpark it from start to finish, usually from start to finish on an instrument, but, and I'll normally have more than one in the works. I like to have two or three and I'm, I'm not, a, I don't, trying to build the numbers that I used to. I never build a whole lot, obviously, and I don't intend to build, you know, big numbers. Um, but usually four to five months from the time I start one to the time it's all the way through the finishing process. Gotcha. But I'll usually be working on a couple others during that same time. Right oh, now, sure. it's just guitars. I've got one guitar that I'm doing the inlay on, and it's about ready for finish, but I'm just starting the other one. But I've had a lot... A lot of repair stuff and setup stuff that's come in over this last year, I guess, because of the pandemic. People aren't, you know, there's no festivals. People are staying at home and playing, and they're getting work done on mm -hmm. instruments. So it's been exceptionally busy. Yeah. And now my youngest son, Matthew, 25, and he's built, I guess, three electric guitars now from scratch. He's not buying any parts except for the, the hardware. Sure. And uh, he does wonderful fret work and such so he's been doing some some repair work as well he's yeah he's working on a yeah. mandolin over there right over putting there. new frets in one yeah yeah mm -hmm. that's awesome um stay, staying in the family that's great too. yeah that's mm -hmm. cool oh somebody wondered if you would ever uh um think about doing like a flat top model 
haven't really thought about that any. Mm -hmm. I do want to develop a two-point. Oh, cool, yeah. That's kind of, hopefully later this year, I can start working on that. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of setting a little time aside just to, you know, kind of develop the pattern and uh, make the make the form and, and carve some patterns for it. And um, I, I really like the two-point. To me, the F5 is an instrument that you just don't mess with very much. It's, <laughs> it's so traditional. Um, you can do a few things. You can make a blonde F5. You can, but to me, still, the sunburst traditional-looking F5 is, is kind of where that's at. I think you can take a little more artistic license with an A5. There's a little more room to do some different things. But a two-point, you know, I, I love the, you know, I see deco-style stuff. Mike Kimnitzer's done some deco-style peg heads and such oh, on yeah. his instruments. And John Monleone, too. And uh, that aesthetic really appeals to me. And I would oh, cool. like to kind of incorporate some of that. When our oldest son got his master's degree a few years ago, he loves ukulele. So I've built one ukulele also. I built him a tenor for a graduation present. And I did a deco style peg head and deco style inlay oh, and some wow. appointments on the bridge. And some of those ideas I'd kind of like to carry over to this mandolin. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Is there, yeah, is that, I was just going to add, that was one of the questions, like, is there something that you haven't built yet or something that you've thought of? You have these, by the way, let mm -hmm. me, let me push the peg winders while we're talking about <laughs> things you build. Yeah. There's uh, another batch of them getting right and blowing out of them again. Yeah. So. It's people, I guess, are changing their strings a lot now <laughs> during the yeah. pandemic. So I like wood turning and uh, I don't do very much of it, but I'm, you know, I've built a lot of these peg winders and sitting there turning the same thing over and over is just kind of relaxing. So uh, I don't always have them, but sure. uh, you know, I'll make a batch of them every once in a while. Yeah. And it's so, fun. Yeah. Listen, pay, play, pay close attention people who are listening to this podcast because <laughs> they might be, they might be done by the time this episode airs. You, you've said a couple things. You said something at least twice since I've been here uh -huh. and I don't know if you noticed, but I, I noticed it instantly mm -hmm. and, and you can tell it and you can tell it in your builds, but you've, said twice it's not work about no, certain things when we're talking and no. i think mm -mm. you can tell that well you know when i first went doing this uh, full time back in 1997 um the morning of february 1st my first day doing it full time i woke up about four o'clock in the morning so excited about it I couldn't go back to sleep <laughs> and so i got up and took a shower and went downstairs and started working and uh, I got over that. I, I can sleep in some now. But I felt real sort of irresponsible towards my family because all of a sudden I enjoyed what I did. And it didn't seem like work. And 99% of the time, it still doesn't seem like work. And uh, to think that I get to come out here to the shop and do this every day is just I, you know, I, I couldn't have dreamed anything that, you know, it would worked out so well for us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so great, man. I, it's, it's, it's really, I'm fortunate yeah. and, and very fortunate to have a wife and family that support that. <laughs> sure. They're, you know, totally behind it. And my wife is the one that kind of gave me the push to uh, go ahead and say, you know, tell them goodbye, you know, start doing this. Yeah. And, wow. Uh, it, had it not been for her support, I probably would have taken the other job. And uh, <laughs> I thought about it uh, last year in October would have been my 40th anniversary at that job if I had made it that long. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> but, no kidding. Uh, yeah. So, and, wow. and I have no plans to retire. Um, like I said, I've, I'm a little slower than I used to be, and I'll probably slow down more over the years. But uh, that's the nice thing. You can kind of build at your own pace. Were you affected at all? I know there's um, th there's a story of one brand. I don't want to name them because I'm not mm -hmm. sure. The, but you know that they were selling for one amount. People were selling their spots in line for more than the mandolins were. Or, yeah. And or mm -hmm. you'd see them on the cafe for way more than, they were just, than what yeah. they were selling for. Yeah, sure. I think all of us who had really good success have gotten caught by that. Mm -hmm. You know, you're... You take orders early along in particular because that's job security. Sure. And in the meantime, the prices start going up and up mm -hmm. and you've made commitments. And so I've honored those commitments. 
I'm pretty much out of most of that now. I've got maybe one or two I need to deliver yet. But uh, yeah, I know a number of builders that did that. And, you know, they're selling for, at one point, three times more than what I was getting for a new one. Right. Used. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So that would drive me crazy, man. Well, it's, I guess it's part of the success thing. Yeah. And uh, you kind of look at it. The way I looked at it is you go to a professional school to become a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, and you rack up all these student loans. <laughs> I was paying off my student loans. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, somebody else was paying off triple their student loans. That's yeah, a, yeah. That's mm-hmm. crazy. Do you, um, do you pay much attention to use? Like, do you ever look out there and wonder... You know, if you, uh, although I've got to say, not a lot of Dudenbostels pop up on the Mandolin no, Cafe used. I, I get them back from time to time mm-hmm. on consignment. Oh, and wow. uh, people tend to want me to sell it. I, I don't sell other instruments, you know, but if, if it's one of mine and, mm-hmm. and an owner wants me to sell it for them, I'll do it for a, a commission. But uh, I get those occasionally, and usually they trade hands privately and nobody knows about it right, but can, right. you know i think carter's got one or two of mine right now so they do show up in the the stores occasionally mm-hmm. and i uh, got a email from a, a gentleman in canada yesterday that just got one of my guitars in on consignment and so yeah they get around some it's interesting though like it never make you wonder like what well, why is why is number 28 for sale i was oh no <laughs> i never i never think about it that way people you mm-hmm. know they're they're uh you know, things come and go. Yeah, especially yeah. in this world. It's amazing oh gosh, to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the people who are like, oh, I found the one. And then six months later, I found the one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness for those folks. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever uh, have you ever played any that you can think of that you were just like, whoo, I, I, uh, is this for sale? That weren't yours? Any mandolin brands that you were just like, ooh, that was a that's a that's a nice one right oh, there. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of really great mandolins out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I pick up. Um, a number of them. And, uh, you know, I had a, a customer send me a, a brand new Gilcrest to uh, set up for him. Uh, and uh, I played it and I sent Steve an email and I said, you know, your stuff still inspires me. And uh, it just, it was just a great instrument. And cool. uh, it's, it's nice to, you know, be friends with, with these guys. And uh, I, I think we all, you know, have that common bond and it's, uh, there are some really great instruments right now Mm -hmm. and everybody's ears different. What's great to one person isn't necessarily great to another person. And that's part of what makes it fun. Is there something that, um, you see people do with their mandolins that maybe not just yours, but just in general, that if you were to be like people listening, don't (laughs) do this. Well, um, occasionally, yeah, uh, typically not too much. Mm-hmm. People tend to take pretty good care of their stuff, but probably the number one enemy to an instrument of any kind, and more so to flat top guitars than mandolins, is wintertime. Humidify, humidify, humidify. Yeah. Um, humidity is one of the biggest dangers, or lack of humidity, uh, biggest dangers to a stringed instrument. Um, and uh, you can ward off a lot of potential problems if you keep it humidified in the winter. Putting a humidifier in the case is a great thing, as long as you put water in it when it dries out. <laughs> I know too many people, well, I put one in there two months ago. Well, it's dry now, <laughs> yeah. you know. Guess so, what? <laughs> um, that's probably one of my biggest pieces of advice to people. And, and, and if you live, you know, out where in an arid area like New Mexico or something, I'm not a fiddle guy. I don't. I don't understand them and uh, don't want to. And <laughs> I, uh, I love great fiddle music, but I just, you know, the instruments, uh, they're just kind of a mystery to me and they can stay that way. But um, I had a fellow come in at the Swannanoa gathering where I, I still work at that camp every year. And uh, he had a violin and it was violin, mandolin and banjo week. So occasionally a violin guy wanders into my shop and he was talking about, uh, you know, getting one and it sounded so great when he got it. And then after a month or so, it just didn't sound near as good. And I found out he lives in New Mexico. And I said, well, where did it come from? He said it was shipped from, I think it was Michigan. And I said, well, they're a little more humid there. And uh, I said, do you humidify your instrument? No. I said, well, is 
you know, an archtop instrument like a violin or a mandolin, uh, it's just like a big hygrometer. And as the humidity goes down, that top and back arch try to flatten themselves out. Flat top guitar, really all it can do is try to pull itself apart. That's why you get so many cracks in guitar tops. Right. But right. mandolins, as they dry, they tend to flatten out the arch just a little bit. And there's room for them to expand and contract some. So what happened was he hadn't had the sound post adjusted and it was probably in there way too tight. So oh, when wow. he got back, he took it to a violin shop and had it adjusted and sent me an email and said, it's back. So humidity not only can do damage to it, it can alter the sound of your instrument. I had a fellow come by yesterday I've known for years and he brought his mandolin and he said, it got a buzz up here on the you know A string or something. But he said, I took it to a fellow and he raised the action some. Well, I measured the action. It was still extremely low. I said, well, this is still a really low action. And it's winter. You know, well, we're just about over winter. But that top had sunk down a little bit. So if you keep a humidifier in the case, you won't have as much problem. So that's that's a big thing. Yeah. You, you don't want to over humidify that. I love the story of Sam Bush taking his uh, taking Haas into the shower in the shower with him. That. Yeah. Oh well. It, there's um there's a story he tells where he went out to Colorado and he was like, Well I'll just I'll take a shower before the gig and I'll just leave the mandolin in the bathroom. Yeah. And then the mm -hmm. steam will and he was like, Oh, terrible idea. <laughs> well, you know, and then there was the opposite with Frank Wakefield putting his lore in the oven. In the oven, right. right. Yeah, what was the story on that? What was the I I've heard that just Dry the, it out or something. I don't know what the whole thing was. Oh my but, goodness. Uh, he put it in the oven to dry it out, and apparently he did. And uh, a friend of mine had a lesson from him a few years ago. He was up in the area, and he called Frank, and he said, and my friend's a wonderful musician. Uh, you know, he didn't need a lesson from anybody, but he wanted to take one from Frank. Uh, for one thing, his uncle used to play with Frank back years ago in southern Ohio. Yeah. And he got to play Frank's lore, the one that was baked, and he said it was just amazing. No kidding. You know, so, uh, yeah, I wouldn't recommend baking your instrument or taking it in the shower, <laughs> right, yeah. either one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I have heard of problems. Um, I think there was a lore that was in South America for a lot of years and started having some seam separations and stuff because it was kind of in a tropical right. you know, rainforest type environment. Yeah. And uh, got a call from a fellow who used to live in Knoxville who lives in Hawaii now. And his old Gibson guitar was just going haywire. And I'm like, it's the price you pay for living in paradise. <laughs> and uh, But, you know, they he didn't have air conditioning in the house. They didn't need it. Right, But right. it was really humid all the time. Yeah, I bet. So, yeah, too much can can be bad, but not as bad as too little, yeah. usually. Not a lot of vintage repair guys in Hawaii, I wonder. Yeah. I it would probably be tough to tough enough to get milk <laughs> yeah that's right yeah <laughs> probably pay a premium price for repairs i bet so, um so the simonoff book you just were talking about right. that looks like it's just reissued yeah it did was, yeah i've got a the... copy of it in the house oh, Roger, dear, nice. me. yeah yeah uh -huh. um it was on the front page of the cafe today and so if people are you know people are listening to this and it's suddenly inspired to to try their hand at building a mandolin what's some advice you would give a brand new a brand new builder to maybe, I mean, obviously don't do it. No, <laughs> you get hooked. You'll spend a lot of money on tools and stuff. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you really need, you know, speaking from experience, you need the place to do it. You need the tools. Uh, but you know, I wandered into it kind of, you know, never had shop class or anything and, um, yeah, do it. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I would never discourage people from doing it. Very few people couple of people I've known that discouraged. <laughs> I, I worried they'd lose fingers. Oh know? my gosh, but, sure. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, yeah, but that book is a good place to start. That's probably the most comprehensive um, publication on, on how to build an F5 mandolin. Right. And, that, and Roger used to teach classes too. Mm -hmm. uh, they had classes out there in California on, uh, and you would actually put one together during the week. And oh, wow. uh, so I don't think he's kind of semi-retired now, but he's still updating his books and such. And that book had been out of print for for a little bit there, right? It was out of print for quite a while. And then he came out with another edition of it. I've got it right over there. Um, oh, maybe 10 years ago or mm -hmm. something. And I don't know whether it went out of print or what, but he's got a newer version of it now that's updated. 
So cool. Uh, he's, yeah. he's continuing, you know, he's not just published a book and sat on it. He's, he's continually made improvements in these things. Number one tool you couldn't live without. Bandsaw. Yeah, couldn't do it. I could live without the table saw. I built my first few instruments without a joiner. I used hand planes. Uh, drill press is real handy to have. Uh, bandsaw is real handy. And I would say probably tied with a bandsaw is a thickness sander. Oh, okay, yeah. For Especially for guitar makers, mm -hmm. for thicknessing the top, back, and sides. But it gets a workout for the mandolin, too. I bet it does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, this has been... This has been awesome, Lynn. Uh, well, it's just inspiring. It's amazing. Like, just just to think of all the people that you, like, again, there's, you've inspired, so many people have picked up the mandolin because of Nickel Creek. Hell yeah. And that mandolin, I mean, is for for tons and tons of years is the, you know, relatable to Chris and inspired right. all that mm -hmm. stuff. And you've, you've inspired a lot of people to pick up mandolins, well, man. It's I pretty incredible. So. I was talking to Adrian at uh, Northfield one time, and he said, you know, we don't need to build mandolins. We need to build mandolin players. <laughs> and he's absolutely right. Yeah. Because, you know, they're doing some great stuff with this uh, flat top mandolin they're building uh, that's affordable and to encourage younger folks to get into it. And, uh, you know, I had uh, some folks say, oh, how generous I was for, you know, helping with the scholarship fund at uh, the symposium. And I said, no, it's really pretty selfish if you look at it. I said, we got to encourage these young folks that'll be around to help support me and my family when I'm old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yeah, but no, it's, it's right. You know, it's getting the, the young folks going on this. And, I think that's uh, a general issue, even guitar and such right now with like electronic mm -hmm. music and kids' short attention spans. Things have changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have. And, uh, you know, video games are more attractive than a, than a guitar or a mandolin, maybe. Right. And, uh, but there still seems to be plenty of market for them. Absolutely. And so thank goodness. I hope it stays. I hope we have a lot more Chris's and Sam's and David's and yeah. such coming along. And, and you do look at the young folks that are playing now. And, There's some great uh, ones. You know. I don't even want to name them because I'll forget one. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, the first year I went to the Mandolin Symposium in 2007, Sarah Jaros was there as a student. And... Uh, they said the one, Chris only taught the symposium, I think the first year they had it. That's so right. There was a whole group of young kids just following him around everywhere like the Pied Piper. Yeah, I think like Jake Jolliffe and Dominic Leslie yeah. were there. So I was uh, sitting in my dorm room shop at the symposium one year and, you know, the weather's beautiful there the end of June and the doors open all the time. People come and go. And I heard just this beautiful mandolin music coming from outside just a little ways away. And I thought, let's be one of the instructors out there playing. I went out and looked. It's a 12-year-old, you know? And so it's in good hands. Yeah, yeah for It's in sure. real good hands. That's awesome. Well, so you're not a beer guy. So I, no, normally, not really. Normally is where I would ask your favorite beer. So I, I have well, to think of it. Oh, if I have to drink one. Uh -huh. <laughs> when my, my boys both like beer. And so uh, when they open one, I'll say, if it passes a sniff test, let me have a taste. And they've had a couple of sour beers. I uh -huh. don't know what they're called or anything, sure. but I'm like, yeah, I, I could drink one. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I'm just not a big beer guy. No, that's I'm not right. a coffee guy either. I'm just strange. Yeah. You know? Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Never did develop a taste for it. So if I, I can't ask you your uh, favorite beer. So I, I would mm -hmm. like to ask you. What, do you have a Desert Island album, mandolin album? Like, if you just could listen to one mandolin album. i tell you one I never get tired of listening to, and I remember when I bought the LP when it first came out, I took it home and listened to it three times, beginning to end, and it just, I didn't realize there wasn't a banjo on it. Until after the third time I listened to it, it's Manzanita. It's just gonna, when you said the banjo yeah. thing, I knew. It, I mean, I there's it was Sam coming. and David and and Skaggs and you know just uh, who's who on there. Tony, um, can't tell you how many times that uh, stood in line at the down home up in Johnson City to go see Tony or Newgrass Revival. And when my wife and I met back in '86, um, I had tickets to go to a show at the Tennessee Theater in a couple of weeks. So we, we went out on one date, and uh, I said, do you like bluegrass music? And she's from Upper East Tennessee, not too far from the down home. 
she said, yeah, I went with my brother to the down home once. I said, well, who'd you see? And she said, well, it was two guitar players, a blind guy and his son. <laughs> and I said, Doc and Merle Watson? She said, yeah, that's who it was. <laughs> and so uh, she said, yeah, I'd like to go to it. So I don't know whether it was the music so much or she was just desperate for yeah, <laughs> a date. But I think she really enjoyed it. But we went to the Tennessee and the Knoxville Grass opened the show. The Tony Rice unit played. Wow. This was not October or November of 96. Oh, 86, excuse me. And then New Grass Revival played. So it, uh, wow. you know, that, and she was hooked on New Grass and Tony Rice ever since then. It's just like, you know, you get in her car and turn on the iPod, you're going to hear, you're going to hear a lot of Tony and Sam and Claire Lynch. Oh, nice. Which is great stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Lynn, thank you for doing this, man. This oh, has it's been, been a great time. Same here, buddy. It's yeah. a pleasure. And thanks for uh, doing the work on my, oh, sure. on my mandos here too. I can't yeah. wait to get home and play. Sounds good. Don't, thanks. don't try to play while you're driving. No. Home. Ah. Right. <laughs> thanks. Thank you. All right, that's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for my sponsors, and welcome to Apollo Picks. Thank you, Peghead Nation, Northfield Mandolins, Pava Mandolins, Ear Trumpet Labs, and don't forget to go over to Simonoff Books and pick yourself up a copy of that Bluegrass Construction Manual. Cheers, everybody. Have a great week.